has been invaded by a culture of death. A culture of death. This phrase was coined about 30 years ago in specific reference to the atrocities of the 20th century. So you think even now in the year 2022, think about just the last 100 years. Think about how many different occasions there has been government-sanctioned mass murdering of millions of people. We have seen, even with all of the modern advancements of our age, the devaluation of life and murder on a scale that we never thought possible, even in our own country, tens of millions of unborn lives taken in the last 50 years alone. But even for those who are living, it seems that in our world, life has lost something. Life no longer has meaning or purpose. So many people are devoid of fullness or fulfillment in their lives. Which is why, I think, one of the reasons why we see so many people going, self-medicating in various ways, whether it's mindless entertainment or alcohol or drugs, or more and more people deciding to take their own life. As people die on the inside as much as they are dying on the outside. And yet, with this hollowed out, shallow existence that we find ourselves in, people still are terrified to, of death, terrified to die, do anything to avoid it, scraping and clawing along, living not fulfilled lives, but just trying to survive. There are all numbers of medicines and machines designed to keep people alive as long as possible. But maybe more to the point, there's all sorts of cosmetics and concoctions and surgeries to keep people from experiencing the effects of growing old as long as possible, trying to stay in that pristine image of youth because they're terrified of the passing of time and the approach of death. And yet, as we know, everybody dies. And I think what we'd see is that this culture of death, this tyranny of death, we might call it, a kingdom of death, is the result of idolatry. The prophets of the Old Testament talked about idols and emphasized the worthlessness of idols, the lifelessness of idols. They cannot see, hear, speak, move. And yet the prophets say that those who worship idols become like their idols. And so in our time, we chase after and we run after, we worship things that have no meaning, purpose, no life in themselves, money, image, career, power, pleasure. These become our idols, and then we are fashioned in their image, lifeless, shallow, and hollow. This is the reality of our world, invaded by the kingdom of death. And it's a world not too dissimilar from the world that Elisha was living in. Idolatry is rampant in Elisha's time. Going back, as we talked about last night, to the beginning of the reign of King Ahab, 
Idols and the Baals in particular had always been a problem in Israel, but Ahab and his wife Jezebel take it to the next level. It seems from 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31 and 32, that what Ahab did was nationalize the worship of Baal in Israel, building a temple in Samaria, building an altar for Baal there at that temple. And so Baal worship and worship of the Asherah is rampant in Israel. And so what we see in this narrative of both Elijah and Elisha is a lifelessness in the land. Remember we mentioned last night the three-year drought. It did not rain at the word of Elijah. And we see the symbolism of that. No life is growing. In fact, the text even mentions in 1 Kings 18 that the animals are being slaughtered to make up for the food that they're not getting out of the ground. Death is running rampant in Israel. There is no life left. In the land. And as we have seen in our own age in the last century, was true in the time of Elisha, it is, of course, the innocent who suffer. 1 Kings 18 mentioned, and we mentioned this last night, the prophets of God, righteous men and women who are hunted down by Jezebel and killed, so that those who survive are hiding in caves. And then, famously, in 1 Kings 21, Naboth, the innocent Naboth, just because he had a vineyard that was appealing to King Ahab, is killed, murdered by the king and queen so that his land could be taken. Which is actually the precise moment that God sends Elijah to Ahab to pronounce judgment on him and his house. Life sucked out of the land, the innocent suffer and are killed And Ahab and his family are like those who run from death only to find it waiting for them. Two very similar stories. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab has been told by the prophet Micaiah he's going to die, so he disguises himself to go into battle so that he can avoid death. And what happens? As he runs from death, death finds him, and a misplaced arrow takes him down. And then his son Ahaziah in 2 Kings 1 thinks he's going to die, knows he's going to die, is sick, sends word to a Philistine god to see if he will survive. And Elijah tells him, no, you are going to die at the word of the Lord. Elisha, living in a world like ours, invaded by a culture of death. But in Elisha, what we see is God fighting back. Life fighting back against death light in the darkness, and God using Elisha to do just that, to bring a glimpse, a glimmer of life into a world of death. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight and ask you to take your Bible out, if it's not out already, and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to look at all of the text of 2 Kings 4 this evening, and I think you will benefit by seeing it in front of you. A couple of you mentioned this last night. I guess it's okay to say that this weekend has been fun. Uh, Maybe we'll say it's been delightful. It seems maybe like a higher word to use. But it's fun to be together with people that I have known in the past from other places and get to spend time with and reconnect with. It's fun to meet people that I did not know before last night. And connections going back even generations in my family uh, to some of you. And that's fun to learn about that, to get to know you and the work you're doing in the Lord. It's fun to sing. And Larry, I appreciate you leading us in our singing. That has been delightful as well. And it's fun to be in God's Word together. I particularly appreciate 
that after the lesson last night, before the lessons today, you all are making comments to me about the lessons themselves and the lessons that are being drawn from the life of Elisha, and I appreciate that. It's obvious as I'm up here that you're listening, and those conversations before and after about the text, about the scripture itself, just make this time even more meaningful. So thank you again for your warm welcome and for engaging in these studies. I pray that this lesson will be profitable for you as well tonight. Let's look at this first story in 2 Kings 4. Most of what we'll look at, what we want to focus on is in the middle of this chapter with the Shunammite woman. But there's a story that's told to us at the beginning of 2 Kings 4 that we'll begin with. Verse 1 says that a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. You shall go in and shut the door behind you, you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went in for him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons can live on the rest. You see, in this first story, the theme of life from death, the first word spoken by the woman in this story is, my husband, your servant, is dead. The final word in this story from Elisha is, sell the oil, you and your sons can live on the rest. But more particularly, we see the theme of the idea of redemption here. The situation here is one of Again, destitution and death in Israel. And not just the fact that this woman's husband has actually died and grief and death hard enough on its own to deal with, but now she's in a situation where she as a widow has to depend on other people. But what's the situation in Israel? People rallying around to help her in her time of need? No, you have a creditor preying upon this innocent person so that her sons have to be sold into slavery in order to cover her debt. This creditor is stealing the life that she does have. But Elisha offers redemption. Remember that in the law there was a provision for what's called the kinsman redeemer. That when there was a debt in the family, a kinsman redeemer could come and purchase that person or that piece of property to redeem that person from the debt. And so Elisha plays the role of the kinsman redeemer by paying the debt that this woman owed. And the symbol of oil is just a fantastic symbol for life in this story. When the prophets talk about the abundant life that's going to be available in Jehovah, there's usually three symbols. Wine, grain, and oil are going to be abundant in Israel. And so the pouring out abundantly of oil in this story is a symbol of the abundant life that God, through Elisha, is pouring into the life of this poor widow who has lost her life and is being sought out by evil. So there is life in Elisha for those who are in destitution. Let's keep going and continue reading. Look at the story of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, beginning in verse 8. It says that there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunam, where there was a prominent woman, 
and she persuaded him to eat food. Elisha, the only preacher in history that had to be persuaded to eat food. (laughs) And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. Verse 9, she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. And it shall be, when he comes to us, that he can turn in there. Verse 11, One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he called to Gehazi his servant, Call the Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Truly she has no son, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, At this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. The woman conceived and bore a son at that season, the next year, as Elisha had said to her. We see here this Shunammite woman, this prominent woman of the region. What we see her doing is inviting the presence of God into her life. One of the themes that we'll see repeated throughout this section of Kings is the difference between those who know who Elisha is, that he's the man of God, and those who are clueless in the story. This woman gets it. She says to her husband early on, this is the man of God, verse 9. But she wants the man of God and the presence of God to be close to her. So she actually builds a room so that he can stay with her and so that she can provide for him whenever he passes through. And so she builds his room. And you notice the interesting description that the author takes the time to tell you what all's in that room. There's a bed and there's a chair, and there's a table, and there's a lampstand. And I don't know what all to make of that, but some of that, especially the presence of the table and the lampstand, reminds us to some degree of the furniture that was placed in the tabernacle or in the temple of God, which I think is significant in this story because remember that Elisha is ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom is divided. And Jerusalem, where the temple of Solomon is, that's in the southern kingdom, the nation of Israel is, in essence, cut off from the temple, the dwelling place of God. And so in the stories of both Elijah and, especially here with Elisha, it's as if the man of God is the portable temple, that he goes from place to place. The temple goes out to the people, and where Elisha goes, there goes the presence of God. And so she sets up this room for Elisha to live in here in her house. She invites God's presence into her life, and the result of that is that she is blessed with the gift of life. She does not ask for it, but the implication of the text is that she has been longing for this for quite some time. This is a story that we see repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. The woman who is barren, the man in his old age, unable to have children, long hoped for so that they can live to their old age in fullness of life with offspring, with children in their home. But yet they are unable. But Elisha says, by this time next year, you will embrace a son. She has a hard time believing it, but that's exactly what happens because this is the God we serve. 
This is the God that Paul says in Romans chapter 4, a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. You may remember that in Romans 4, Paul is referring to the story of Abraham and Sarah and the birth of their son Isaac. And this story is clearly told. The fact that she is standing in the doorway was where Sarah was when she overheard the conversation of the angel with Abraham. And the fact that it's a one-year timeline is the same timeline given to Abraham and Sarah. This reminds us of the promises of God all the way back to Abraham. It reminds us of God's faithfulness to bless his people with life, to bless those who invite his presence into their life as the woman of Shunem has done. But the story doesn't end here. You may remember that. And so let's keep reading then in 2 Kings 4, verses 18 to 37. When that child, it says, was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to the servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. She called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or Sabbath. She said, It will be well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive. Go forward, do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, this is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came near to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone. Her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I not ask? Did I ask you for a son for my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins, take my staff in your hand, and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. If anyone salutes you, do not answer him. Lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad is not yet awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered, shut the door behind them both, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. He stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked to the house once back and forth, went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came into him, he said, take up your son. And she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son and went out. Maybe we can, maybe we can't imagine the pain 
that this woman experiences. A pain perhaps heightened by the fact that she had finally, after so many years, received this precious gift of life, only to have it taken away from her so suddenly and so tragically. And we should probably think, how would we respond? How might I respond in a situation like this? I can imagine I might respond with some bitterness, with some resentment, some isolation. I never want to see the face of that Elisha ever again. This is what he did to me, getting my hopes up, bringing me a child only to have that child taken away. But you notice in the story, the woman of Shunem does the opposite of that. That even in the face of this horrible tragedy, even in the face of death, she knows where to go. And she depends wholeheartedly on Elisha, on getting there as fast as she can. Run. She tells her servant, drive fast, don't slow down. Run every red light. Get there as fast as we can. And when she gets there in verse 27, she falls down and clings to his feet. She understands in the face of death that he is the man of God and that he holds the power of life. And, yet again, for the second time, Elisha gives the gift of life to this woman. And the, the life that Elisha offers, from God, of course, is found in his presence. His presence, the presence of Elisha, is special in this story. When Elisha says to Gehazi, you go on and take my staff, the woman says, no, 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 that's not going to do. I'm, I'm sticking with you, and we're going together. And when the staff is laid on the boy, he does nothing. The staff does not revive him at all. But it's when Elisha comes near, and you notice how physical this story is, that he has to lay himself out, spread himself out on the boy, eyes to eyes, mouth to mouth, hands to hand. It's Elisha's presence and contact with this boy that gives him life. And of course, there are layers to the life that's given in this story. So of course, the boy is dead, and he receives his life back. But can't we say the same thing for the mother? That when she lost her boy, she lost her life. And now she has received her life. And then another layer, similar to the first story we've seen, as opposed to with an old husband living as a widow with no one to provide for her, now her life in that sense has been restored as well, that she can have an offspring to care for her and to provide. The boy has life, the mother receives life, and has a future as well because of the presence of God in his prophet, Elisha. Well, before we wrap this up, talk about what it means for us, let's go ahead and finish chapter 4. There's a couple more instances here in 2 Kings 4 that we want to pay attention to. Starting in verse 38 of 2 Kings 4, when Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them onto the pot of stew. For they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat and they were eating of the stew. They cried out, Oh man of God, there is death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. But he said, now bring meal. He threw it into the pot and said, pour it out to the people that they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. 
Verse 42, Then a man came from Baal Shaldashah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, What? Will I set this before a hundred men? But he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. We're reminded of the situation in Israel that we saw last night, where there is, among a nation of unfaithful, idolatrous people, there is this ragtag band of the sons of the prophets, just trying to live together, scrape by with what they have. And we see a picture of them here. Not much to eat. They're rounding up whatever they can. A little bit of incompetence, perhaps, in the gathering of food. And now they've made stew that is poisonous, it seems. But Elisha is able to heal the pot so that the death is removed and so that the food can bring life and not death. And then there's not enough food when they bring bread for everybody to eat. A hundred men eating these 20 loaves of bread? And Elisha is able to multiply the bread to have enough for everyone to eat, sufficient, and some left over. And there's multiple things going on in the story. I would say looking backward and looking forward. Remember before that Elisha was retracing the steps of Elijah from chapter 2, that Elijah in his final moments had gone from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho across the Jordan. We saw Elisha coming back through each of those places to prove himself to be the prophet of God. He hadn't yet made it to Gilgal, but here he is, finally completing the journey, showing himself to be the true prophet in Gilgal. But remember that Gilgal was the place that when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land, Joshua had the people build stones, 12 stones as a memorial to the deliverance that God was giving them. And Gilgal was the place in Joshua chapter 5 that the manna from heaven stopped because they were no longer in the wilderness and God was now providing for them food in the Promised Land for them to eat. But now we see where Israel is. We go from Gilgal where they had the Promised Land given to them, bread abundantly, Now in Gilgal, there is no bread to eat. There's not enough food to eat. That's how far Israel has fallen. But in the presence of the man of God, for the man of God and for the remnant of God's people, there is bread and there is life. And Elisha provides that for them. But hopefully you saw very easily what this looks forward to. And I will confess, it was not that long ago that I stumbled upon this story and I thought, really? This has been in my Bible. Did someone add this in just the last couple of years? Because I don't think I remembered Elisha multiplying bread in the way that he does it. So reminiscent. Well, it works the other way, doesn't it? Looking forward so clearly to how Jesus would multiply bread. You want us to give us, the disciples said, this bread to all these people? And Jesus said, yeah, pass it out. And there were some left over. So clearly what Elisha is doing here and throughout this chapter is looking ahead to what Jesus will do. And that's where we want to end our conversation tonight, talking about how all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. By the way, you might want to jot it down, especially in Luke chapters 8 and 9. In those two chapters, we see an account of women ministering for Jesus, the beginning of Luke chapter 8. We see Jesus reviving Jairus' daughter after she had died. And we see the feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of bread. So you look at the similarity of those stories, and it reinforces that thesis, surely, that we were talking about, of how clearly Elisha points us forward to Jesus. 
Let's talk about a couple ways in which we see that. With Jesus himself, as Elisha represents the presence of God moving from place to place in Israel, Jesus is the fullness of that. Jesus is God in the flesh. And remember that he describes himself in John 2 as the temple. Tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is the presence of God. He is God with us. He is God dwelling with his people. So as Jesus goes around, that is God going around from place to place. And what is Jesus doing in the Gospels but going around and giving life? People that are enslaved to an unclean spirit, freeing them from that. People who are blind so they can see. People who are hungry, giving them food to eat. Who are ill, who are dead, literally, raising them from the dead. And in Matthew chapter 8, in the midst of these stories that are being told about Jesus healing, Matthew says that this is to fulfill Isaiah 53, which says that he took our infirmities and our diseases. But what did Isaiah 53 mean when it talked about the Messiah taking our diseases and our infirmities? Well, he was talking about taking our sins and our iniquities. And that's what Jesus does. It's not just that Jesus has little glimpses of life or a little bit of healing there or restoration there. Jesus gives life because he goes to the root of the problem. All the sickness, all the pain, all the uh, illness and brokenness of our world is because of sin. And so not only does Jesus show us in his miracles the giving of life, but Jesus roots out the main problem. He takes care of sin. And how did he do that? By laying down his body, his hands, his feet being nailed to the cross, laying himself down, sin is dealt with in his body so that all who are joined to him, all that will unite with him, see life in his eyes, his hands being our hands, all those who are joined to Jesus can receive that new life. And there's a message, of course, of hope for that in us. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord right now. But again, that image of death, it could be that you're dying in some sin that is tearing your life apart, or that you're barren, feeling that life is unfruitful, that it's meaningless, emptiness, maybe dealing with grief and sorrow of death that has racked your life. The message of hope is that Jesus has come, God in the flesh, to give us life. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's abundant life that is available for us in Jesus who gave his body, laid down his body for us. And so, as we saw last night, not only does Jesus fulfill the story of Elisha, but now we take up the mantle of Elisha as well. And the stories of Elisha, I think, are instructive for us. Again, going back to the idea of the temple. Under the old covenant, the temple was the place that the presence of God dwelled. And people would come to the temple to come into the presence of God. But in the new covenant, God dwells. Remember, Jesus said, not on this mountain or in Samaria, but those who worship me will worship in spirit and truth. The presence of God dwells with his people all over the world. And so we now, as the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit that Paul described, we are the portable temple. We are the presence of God going out into the world. And like Elisha, and like Jesus, we take that life 
the life that God has blessed us with, we take his presence, we take it out into the world, to the lives. We go door to door, so to speak, like Elisha did. The people that we know in our lives, the people that we come in contact with, our neighbors, our family, our co-workers, the people that we live life with, they see God in us and we bless them with life, showing them the light and the love of Jesus. People that are suffering, living in the same world we're living in that we started with this evening, living in a world invaded by sin and death. And the beautiful work that we're called to do is to go out, carrying the presence of God, to invite others out of the kingdom of death and into the life that God provides us. That's our calling, as we said last night, a wonderful calling and a high calling. And so we'll sing one more song. And this, again, is a call for us to be ministers, messengers of life in a world of death. And if you have a certain need to receive that life and to enter in, to join yourself to Christ tonight in baptism or to find encouragement and refreshment from the good people here, you can come to the front now as we stand and sing the song.